It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. We receive a lot of really wonderful and interesting recommendations from listeners of the podcast and fans of ours online. And we keep a running list of these suggestions for topics and explorations. And one of the ones that really popped out at me this morning, when we were talking about what we were going to talk about, <laughs> and this might get uncomfortable, the idea was talking about human domestication and the pros and cons of, I suppose, the point that we're at in humanity right now. And it is an interesting point that we are at because I feel personally like there is a obviously burgeoning and exploding movement in different technologies from artificial intelligence to genetically modified foods. We look at the vaccine technology with the mRNA sequencing. We're talking about transferring consciousness into hard drives, not to mention cryptocurrency, self-driving cars. We're in a really interesting moment in humanity as we are recording this episode in 2021. And I find it interesting because it seems to me that there's a dichotomy between this emerging technology that I think overall, perhaps the aim is to improve the human condition and extend our lifespans, make access to food easier, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of visionary promises that are usually made with new technology. At the same time, I think that there's a really growing movement with people wanting to grow their own food and save their seeds and do food sharing and do sort of a local CSA box where they're literally sharing foods and sharing supplies with their neighbors and people in their local communities. There's a growing movement we saw during the pandemic of people making food, baking bread, planting gardens, getting back to a more sort of old school domestic approach with canning foods, pickling foods, culturing foods. My question in all this, as we were proposed with this idea of exploring human domestication, it brings up a concern for me, Whitney, in the sense that I wonder if we as humans in some ways are losing touch with our wildness and our connection to nature and how so many generations before us sustained themselves and connected and lived in small units. You know, we live in these giant, sprawling, suburban or concrete jungle landscapes. And I think in some ways, I want to examine how I can personally find a balance between all of this emerging technology, which in some ways might be making us lazier and dumber, maybe, and the balance of all the things that I mentioned, which I think is staying connected to our roots as human beings, as tribal, primal, wild human beings. It reminds me of a lot of the work that Daniel Vitalis does. He's got a company out there called Sir Thrival, and I met him years ago on speaking tour at a Longevity Now conference. And one of Daniel's things has been about rewilding humanity. I don't agree with all of his practices, but I think the idea of rewilding human beings is very interesting. Walking barefoot on the earth, taking walks in nature. He talks about food cultivation, wild foraging. He is into hunting and he's not vegan. 
But at the core of Daniel's message, I do find it interesting. He's not necessarily anti-technology and people who are in the wilding movement. I don't think they're anti-tech. I think their concern, though, is we're moving so far away from what makes us human beings and the roots of how we emerged as a civilized society to now being way too dependent on technology and digitization. So I bring this up because I think it's an interesting thing to explore. You, Whitney, we've talked about this on our podcast. You're way ahead of the curve in terms of being an early adopter. Whereas I tend to hang back, I wait for technologies and innovations to kind of prove themselves, right? Or see how people handle them, see how humans adopt them. And I'm curious how you feel about this balance. Do you feel like we are losing touch with a lot of these primal sort of intrinsic elements that we've subsisted on as humans for so long? And do you feel like we are losing ourselves amidst all this technology? How do you feel about this balance? There's a lot to uncover, and I tend to dive into research to help me shape my feelings on things like this because I don't have a super strong feeling. And since I tend to be a little bit more scientific in my thinking, I immediately start to wonder like, hmm, well, what would be best and what does the data say? So one thing I found is an article on NPR. And actually, if you type in human domestication, a number of articles on the subject matter come up. And this one on NPR.org, which we'll link to in the show notes of this podcast at wellevator.com, which is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. I will link to this article about how humans domesticated themselves. And one thing I find super fascinating is that the cognitive revolution took place between 40,000 and 90,000 years ago, which is mind-blowing. Because it feels like things that happened 100 years ago were vastly different than they are today. So can you imagine? Like, I can't. It doesn't make any sense to me. But that's when, as this article says, our creativity exploded into a gallery of tools, weapons, carvings, and cave drawings. So we have been developing for a very long time as a species. This is also when we started cooperating more. So our skills and our knowledge started to spread within our group. And some people believe that this leads us to become weak and dependent. And I think this is part of your point, Jason, of like, is using technology a weakness? Are we too dependent on technology? And I mean, who's to say? We're very biased because we've been living in this society for so long. What else do we know? It's just like when you look at animals that we've domesticated, this article talks about how plants changed because of the cooperation with pollinators, dogs becoming different while domesticated, of course. Even wolves have become more friendly because humans are providing food sources and We're doing the same thing for all sorts of animals, even if they don't live with us, like the way that we care for wild horses and deer, and we're protecting these different species. And of course, some people are hunting them as well, but that's changing the way that they're living. And a lot is shifting around and it feels very comfortable, which I think really ties into the theme of this podcast. To what lengths do we go for comfort and to avoid discomfort? 
And I think technology for me, as you were saying, being an early adopter on this curve of technology, I'm usually not quite on the innovator level, which is like the first people to start using technology or they're the ones creating it. But I am in that second wave of early adopters. So I tend to jump on board with things relatively early on. And I guess it's kind of like if you look at the hunter-gatherer, maybe I'm not the first person to go out to hunt or check out the terrain. But once that person comes back and says it's safe, I'll go on next before the next wave. Or the gatherer is like, am I trying the berries to see if they're poisonous or not? Probably not. But if somebody says they're not poisonous, maybe I'll believe them and be the second round of people that tries them and figures out what to do with them. I digress from the point of just that it's hard to say, Jason, like we're so developed at this point. Like I feel like in our lifetime, we're not going to see any major changes going backwards, I don't think. But then again, when you see some of these dystopian movies, for example, like they show what could happen. And certainly the things that we've seen change during the pandemic have shifted. I mean, our use of Zoom, for example, or other tools like that is so different than it was a year ago. We saw the shift that happened when we got iPhones and similar technology, right? They changed the way that we operate in a short span of time. So I suppose we could go in a completely different direction for, quote, better or worse. But I don't know how extreme it would be in, in terms of affecting us as human beings and... I think like, I guess a comforting perspective for us at our age range is like, okay, hopefully life is not going to change too much in our lifetime that we'll see things go completely south, (laughs) but maybe things will take a turn and be quote better. But when you look at how much time has passed, I mean, 40,000 years ago, Jason, like so much has changed since then. Who are we to say that things are better or worse? I mean, I guess they're easier in some ways, but harder in another. So these are the kind of things that like, I don't even know if I enjoy pondering, to be honest, because they don't feel clear to me. They feel almost like until I get some data on them, they just feel so speculative and biased. It's just like, all right, so we're just pondering, but (laughs) for what reason? Like, what's the point? We don't have control. We only have control over ourselves and the collective impact we can have when we join together. But I don't know if we have control over something like this. And then what's even the point for us discussing domestication if we're already here? <laughs> you know, it's kind of like that thought process of like hindsight's twenty twenty. We can't go and change the past. We can't go and change what's led us up to us now. I think what we can change is our relationships with technology, as you brought up. But there's still a lot of data to be collected on that. And I think most people have to be convinced. And they're the extremists, but the extremists have to test things out. And when you were bringing up Daniel, like he's on the innovator end of the spectrum, I believe, or maybe early adopter, but they're in that group of people that have to like convince others that that's the way to be. And I think that takes a long time to study it and take a very scientific approach to convince the rest of the curve to shift in that direction. I don't know that it's about convincing people per se, because I think maybe some people like 
an extremely digitized, ultra tech heavy type of existence. Maybe they like living in the city. Maybe they like all of the digital mediums we have now. I don't know if it's necessarily like convincing people that domestication is wrong or bad. And to your point, Whitney, I don't want to make this a binary speculative discussion. I think for me, it's sort of like a more guttural thing of, do I feel connected to my life? Do I feel connected to nature? Do I feel connected to my food? Yes or no. And if I don't feel connected to those things, why don't I feel connected? And is Zoom and podcasting and YouTube and social media making me feel more connected and alive and in touch with myself and in touch with the world? Or is it making me feel less so? And it's a complicated set of answers, right? Because in some ways, it does make me feel more connected. You and I are dozens of miles away right now from each other. It's not an extraordinary distance, but here we are doing our podcast, right? I mean, this is a very beneficial thing. Technology is not bad. However, I do think that there's a conversation I laugh about because I have a version of this conversation with my mom on a semi-regular basis. And my mom's generation, baby boomers, grew up in an era post-war a lot of technological innovation with transportation, things like that. And we talk about how a lot of technology today, I think, has the intention of making our lives easier, but in many ways feels overly complex. So kind of a funny example. For anyone who drives a car, we don't want to assume everyone drives. Actually, I have some friends in New York that don't drive. But if for any listener who drives a car, one of the basic things you learn when you start to drive a car is to check your mirrors, check your blind spots, right? Well, how do you do that? Well, you adjust your mirrors, you look over at one, you look over at the other. And if you need to look at your blind spot, you literally turn and look over your shoulder for a second, right? That's how I was taught to do it. Check your mirrors, check your shoulder. Cool. Well, now we have lane departure warning and we have blind spot monitoring and we have accident avoidance and we have this and we have LIDAR and we have radar in our cars. And as an example of someone who's passionate about cars, who learned how to drive stick shift very young and who's driven a variety of cars, I think in many ways, the intent of these things is to keep people safer, keep them happier, do the work for them. But it's also, I think, reducing certain skill sets in us. Now, some people, and I've had this conversation too, is like, well, what we do consistently and what we do repetitively, we talk about consistency a lot. We have this great program, The Consistency Code. It's a habit-building exercise. You do things consistently. You do them with intention. You make them repetitive. It's a habit-building thing, which builds a skill set within us, right? So with this example of cars or any tech, Whitney, it's like, what are we losing skill-wise in exchange for these new technologies, right? Because I can check my fucking mirrors. I can look over my shoulder. I don't need your blind spot monitoring. I don't need your lane departure. Like, I've driven a car successfully without these things for almost 30 years, right? So I might sound like a Luddite, and some people listening might be like, oh, Jason sounds like, <laughs> get off my lawn, kids. And I laugh at myself sometimes because I'm like, I'm wondering if I'm like getting old school about this stuff. But I just wonder, are we making things too complicated? And what is the absolute necessity of a lot of these innovations? And again, I know you really want to see the data on these things. I personally like pontificating on this because I don't know that I want to overly techify my life because I want to live a simple life. And sometimes when I get too much tech, 
I feel overwhelmed by it. You might not feel the same way, but I feel like if I have too many devices, there's too many knickknacks, some of the new cars I've gotten into, it's like, what are all these buttons? What the hell is all this? Do we need all this? And I think it comes down to like, just because we can do something as humanity, should we do it? That's really where I sit with all of it. It almost reminds me also of, you remember the movie Cloud Atlas? Cloud Atlas has all these great scenes in these parallel timelines with different lives. I don't want to give any spoilers away. I think it's a really cool movie. The Wachowskis did it, who were the directors of the Matrix series. And I really like that movie. We saw it together. That's right. We did. Thank you. So in one of the vignettes in this story, there's a future timeline where Tom Hanks and Halle Berry are playing a couple of the characters, and they also play different characters in past timelines. And the whole idea is past, present, and future existing together. And anyway, in this future vision, they've gone through a ultra digitized, cold, sort of dystopian world, which just blows up and crumbles. And the future is this really interesting hybrid of primal, like hunting. They have these straw huts. But then they have like technology that was left over from the civilization that crumbled. Like I remember that vignette being kind of like they went back to the old ways because society crumbled, but they still had some technology that was left over from the ultra digitized situation. So it was like kind of old school meets new school. I thought that was really interesting. And it may be that humanity ends up with some sort of hybrid situation where we don't dispose of all the technology, but perhaps we begin to realize that all of this tech might not be serving us because it's too much. That's why we've joked about this in the past when you would come to me excitedly about like a new social media app and you're like, oh, check out this app, da-da-da, and you'd get all excited to be like, I don't want one more thing. And I realized that for me, it's partially because I start to feel overwhelmed by too much technology. And it may be that your threshold as a person who's an early adopter is very different than my interest in my threshold. And you know, On the level, like, I do want to grow more of my food. I do want to have a higher level of food security. There's been some really interesting articles that I've read, which we'll link to in the show notes at wellevator.com. Again, our website and our hub for everything is W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. In these recent articles that I've been looking at online the past couple of weeks, there's been some, some concerning reporting about different corporations, Monsanto, Bill Gates, some other privately held corporations, buying up thousands of acres of land in the US. And everyone's like, hmm, Monsanto, Bill Gates, private holding corporations, why are you buying all this land? We don't really know for sure. Again, all speculative. I think that the point of growing our own food and having a higher level of food security is probably an interesting thing to focus on. I certainly want to focus on getting some seeds, growing more food, pickling, canning, So the reason is why? Well, I don't want to get into conspiracy theory or nefarious forces working against humanity, but I do find it concerning when giant billion-dollar corporations start to buy up thousands of acres of arable cropland. Like, okay. I just think that there's a balance that would be wise to find here, and I'm just certainly trying to find that for myself, not just in terms of, oh, driving a stick shift car and listening to old vinyl records and keeping an old phone and whatever. I think to me, it just comes down to Whitney, like, is it giving me peace of mind? 
Do I feel freer as a result of this technology or this habit? Or do I feel more enslaved and more constricted by it? So aside from the data, I try and just pay attention to my emotional life and how these things make me feel. And that's kind of the compass that I'm using right now. Well, speaking of food, one source of data is on a site, csfjournal.com. Again, I will link to this and any other resource that we mention. It's self-domestication Deconstructing Mental Illness is the title of this. And this is a research article, it looks like, based on studies. And there's a number of interesting things that I found just by scanning it quickly. One of them in the conclusion section of this article goes into how the government is involved in what they can do because studies have found, Jason, that there is a prominent increase in mental illness in urbanized areas. And some people believe that this is because we have so much exposure to poverty. Even if we're not in poverty, we're still seeing it more than somebody that might live more separate from others that isn't in poverty themselves. Noise can impact our mental health. And these things can cause stress, distress, and anger. And that was from a study done in 2017 And I know you can relate to both of those, Jason. You're very triggered by noise from your neighbors. It's a huge cause of stress and anger for you. So you're not alone in that. And there's a general anxiety that people have from being within high proximity to one another. And the comparison trap is brought up in this article a number of times. And these are backed by studies. So those are two things that you talk a lot about, Jason. I know that you feel... A lot of intensity coming from that. But the other element of this in terms of how we live is the increase in prices of food, which you're bringing up GMOs. Like we might know that genetically modified foods are bad for us, or I don't like to use the word bad. There is research that shows that they might be causing long term negative effects on our body. Let's put it that way. Not everybody agrees with that. There's a big debate. But let's just say that you're somebody who wants to eat organic food. Well, we all know that organic food is typically more expensive than non-organic food, whether it's genetically modified or not. And if a food contains antibiotics and pesticides and all of that, it's generally less expensive. And that's part of the food industry right now. There's a number of reasons why organic food is more expensive, Sometimes it's because of subsidies from the government. Sometimes it's because people are taking advantage of the organic interest and charging more for it. Maybe it doesn't always need to be that much more. And this is in some ways restricting our collective ability to choose and get access to certain food, whether it's not grown near you or whether it's too expensive And that's the result of the food industry and capitalism and the way our government runs and just the way things are set up, right? So that's part of domestication as well to the point of this article that there's an external power forcing our decision-making outcomes. And if you think about the way that we're living too, Jason, think of all the factors that go into where you live and how you live. That starts with where you're born and what you have access to access of education because education might lead to you leaving town. It might lead to you 
getting a specific type of job because of your knowledge. Lack of education can lead you to never leave town and to not have access to certain jobs, not having a certain finance structure in your home or things changing as you're growing up or your job obviously can impact it. So all of these things start to add up, which leads you to where you're currently living. And if you're currently living someplace because of what you have limited access to, then that could impact your mental health. I mean, there's so many things that have gone into your situation, Jason. I bring that up specifically because I feel content. I don't have major issues with where I live at the moment. I live in Los Angeles. I like my home. I'm content. I also have the ability to pick up and go visit my family because of my job situation and financial ability and my relationship with my family. If I want to leave Los Angeles, I can literally leave at any point and go be with them. That's another privilege that I have. You could certainly do that with your mom, but I don't know if you would feel any happier at your mom's place, Jason. It sounds like her area would probably lead to you feeling similar emotions because she lives in close proximity to other people and in a city that's actually got a lot of challenges financially as well. And weather is a concern for you. So I want to toss it back to you, Jason. When we think about not just food and our access to that, but also like where we're living and how that's impacting our mental health and how that's kind of the accumulation of your life, but also domestication as a whole. I think it's a conversation around how we change as beings, as people. Because when I was in my teens and 20s and 30s, I was very, very driven to live in big cities. I grew up in the city of Detroit. It's like, okay, I want to move to Chicago. I'm going to live in Chicago for three years. And then I'm going to go to New York City and sing and be a chef in New York and then move to the Bay Area. And I've been in LA almost 15 years now. And I think as a result of, it's not that I haven't traveled to remote areas or more natural environments, but where I've resided, where I've chosen to maintain a home has been from city to city to city to city. It's all I've known has been a dense, stressful, urbanized environment. So part of me is realizing that Whitney, I think my nervous system really, really needs a break from that because I have noticed that here in LA, as an example, as everything opens back up, and at the time of this recording, we're recording this in May of 2021, we are scheduled to open the entire city back up, apparently, by June 15th. So everyone's like, yay, city's opening back up. I'm like, that's going to mean traffic. That's going to mean congestion. That's going to be more airplanes. Like already, dozens of airplanes over my house every day. Whereas last year, it was quiet. It was like, oh my God, I've never heard of this quiet. So in some ways, the pandemic was giving me more peace and quiet here in Los Angeles than I'd ever experienced in nearly 15 years. So I'm dreading the whole thing opening back up to a degree because my nervous system is like, I don't want to deal with it anymore. I don't want to deal with the traffic. I don't want to deal with the crush of humanity. I don't want to deal with all the noise. I just think that at this point, my nervous system is fried on this kind of stimulation. So what does that mean? Well, if I'm really dedicated to my self-care and being honest with what my needs are now, I don't want to be in a city anymore. I want a different experience. That doesn't mean I want to be 
in the middle of nowhere, hours from a hospital, hours from civilization. I'm not envisioning sort of this Grizzly Adams type of experience with all my animals. It's not that. However, I think living on the outskirts of a city where there's more land, there's more nature, there's animals, there's cleaner air, hopefully cleaner water. Yet, you know, if you need to go to the hospital <laughs> and you need supplies and you need things, you have access to that. So again, I think it goes back to this idea of balance I was talking about wit, where even with my living environment, I want to be in nature, in quiet, in some semblance of solitude, not stacked next to people. You know, it's like, I feel like I can reach my arm out and just touch my neighbor's house right now. Like, I don't want that anymore. So this is really a conversation about, I think, our evolving needs and our evolving desires as human beings. Because for decades, I wanted that city life. I wanted the clubs and the music and the comedy. And I still do. I love all that. Do I want to live in it 24-7? I don't think that it's healthy for me mentally to live in a major city anymore. And I also think that I've been existing kind of like as a tangent for a second in this old school paradigm, right, of, well, if you're an artist and you're a content creator, you need to live in LA or New York, right? That's like, if you're going to do music and entertainment and film and whatever content, you got to be in LA and New York. That's where the agents are. That's where the community is. That's where the collabs are. But I've done both of those things, right? And I don't feel the necessity to do things like our podcast, YouTube, Instagram, the music I'm doing. I don't need to be here anymore. And I think there's been part of me that's been clinging to this old paradigm of, yeah, but you need to be there. And I'm like, no, dude, it's not 1999 anymore. You don't have to be there. You could be in freaking Wichita if you want to. Not that I'm going to move to Wichita. I don't know. I've never been to Wichita. It could be a nice place. But I think my point is, if we as human beings are really self-aware of how our needs and desires change and what's going to make us feel good and feel nourished, I don't feel nourished by Los Angeles anymore. There was a time I did. So then the question is, well, what's going to nourish me? And I think the answer is nature. Nature is going to nourish me. So I'm really contemplating where that's going to be. And again, it's a life experiment, right? Maybe I go into nature and I'm like, whoa, this is way too crazy. I didn't think this is what it was going to be. Well, then I can always come back to the cities aren't going anywhere. Unless Godzilla makes an appearance, then maybe cities are going somewhere. If the aliens show up, Whitney, and just start torching the cities. (laughs) That's a morbid thought. Sorry. Anyway, that's another upcoming episode, by the way, y'all, because in June, the federal government's going to be releasing their files on, they don't call them UFOs. No, they call them UAPs. So anyway, that's probably going to be an upcoming episode. Spoiler alert. I did not know that UAPs, what does that stand for? So the federal government refuses to officially call them unidentified flying objects. They now refer to them as unidentified aerial phenomena, UAPs. I think it's a euphemism game because I think people with UFOs automatically flash on little gray aliens, right? And so I think UAPs, they're trying to play this euphemism game so that people don't automatically think they're going to reveal these papers and they're going to actually tell us aliens exist. So the federal government has officially changed their verbiage to UAPs now. Interesting. (laughs) As I'm going down my research in real time, one thing I came across is this term called the naturalistic fallacy. If you can look that up, Jason, I am curious about what you would 
think about it, it's basically a fallacy that argues that if something is natural, it must be good. So I've never actually heard of this terminology before, natural fallacy, although in some ways it sounds kind of pseudo-Darwinian. So I just looked it up to want to know the reference you're bringing up here, Whitney. And I found the Wikipedia entry for naturalistic fallacy. It's a pretty long, a little bit difficult to understand philosophical dissertation, but one section in particular that jumped out at me that I was like, ah, light bulb. It's some people use the phrase naturalistic fallacy or euphemism appeal to nature in a different sense to characterize inferences of the form something is natural, therefore it's morally acceptable, or this property is unnatural, therefore it's undesirable. Really interesting. It gives some examples. It says such inferences are common in discussions around medicine, science, homosexuality, environmentalism, and veganism. And there's a guy named Steven Pinker who has a a quote here that says, the naturalistic fallacy is the idea that what is found in nature is automatically good. It was the basis, here we go, for social Darwinism, the belief that helping the poor and the sick would get in the way of evolution, which depends on survival of the fittest. Today, modern biologists denounce the naturalistic fallacy because they want to describe the natural world honestly without people deriving morality about how we ought to behave based on nature. Examples, If birds and animals engage in adultery, infanticide, and cannibalism, it must be okay for us to do too. That's really interesting. It's interesting for several reasons. Number one, I think it's highlighted that I have a bias towards naturalistic fallacy, which is like, oh, if it's natural, it must be good. If it's organic, if it's grown in the right kind of soil, if it comes from this farmer, and it doesn't have these chemicals, then it automatically must be good. Like It's revealing to me that I have a hella amount of biases around this. But the second part that's interesting in that Steven Pinker comment was looking at the natural world and then somehow creating a corollary between our human practices. You know, He brought up infanticide, adultery, cannibalism. Well, those do exist in the animal world. But we, in our system of ethics and morality, generally speaking, I would think most people would say, yeah, killing your children and eating each other are probably not good practices to have in human society, right? So this is interesting, Wit. It's interesting to see how this philosophy colors our choices and shapes our biases in life. And I think right now, this is really prevalent, not only around the GMO food conversation, which you brought up but around also vaccines and different medical interventions and people saying, oh, vaccines aren't natural. We shouldn't have them. And other people saying, no, they are good and here's why. And so we are kind of seeing this naturalistic fallacy creating a dividing line with a lot of issues in our culture right now, wouldn't you say? I mean, it's, it's sort of like this really, I've never heard this terminology before, so I'm fascinated by it, number one, but also as a tool for me to examine my judgments and biases in my life, which clearly I've got a lot of them. <laughs> I've got a lot of them. Do you feel like this plays a role in your life too? Like, do you identify with this in your, I suppose, system of belief? Certainly I can resonate with some of it. 
I think that I lean towards the natural way of doing things because I associate that with something that's good, that's pure, that's better, all of that. But I also have that scientific side of myself where I tend to believe things more if it's backed up with research. And that played a role in me deciding to get the vaccine, for example. Certainly my hesitancy to get the vaccine was part of this idea that I don't want to put something in my body unless it feels important to do so. And so I had to do a lot of research to come to that determination that it felt important for me to do so. This also reminds me a lot of the book I've been reading called The Righteous Mind, which goes into all of these scenarios and belief systems that we have and how we can become hyper-focused on what something ought to be and whether something is right or wrong. In one of the articles I'm reading about the naturalistic fallacy, it outlines the is versus ought fallacy which is when a statement of facts jumps to a statement of value without explanation. And an example of this could be, it is true that smoking is harmful to your health, therefore you ought not to smoke. And that's something that I'm like, oh, that makes sense to me. you know. And then it goes on to say, the claim that you ought not to smoke is just saying that it would be unhealthy for you to, is not just saying that it would be unhealthy for you to smoke. It would be unethical. Why? Because lots of unhealthy things are perfectly ethical, but that's where this whole like is ought statement comes in where it starts to become unsound. And this goes into more detail in this. So I'll link to this article on wellevator.com for somebody to kind of dig into this further because it's a bit confusing. You know, we're reading this on the fly and I'm like, my brain's having trouble fully understanding this. But I think it comes down to the ethics of it, Jason, and how another example is that breastfeeding is the natural way to feed children. Therefore, mothers ought to breastfeed their children and not ought not to use baby formula. That one is a little bit different for me because part of me does think that breastfeeding sounds great, but another part of me understands that not everybody is able to breastfeed Not everybody wants to breastfeed. So I have room in my belief systems for the fact that some people choose to do baby formula and who am I to judge them? And the article says, we act against nature all the time with vaccinations, electricity, medicine, many of which are ethical. Lots of things that are natural are good, but not all unnatural things are unethical. This is what the naturalistic fallacy argues. What that brings up for me is that each person's individual ethics and set of morals is going to vary from person to person. You brought up smoking. Some people find smoking really pleasurable. So perhaps in their value system, maybe, the pleasure of what they derive from smoking a cigarette is of a higher value than the potential health consequences, if you will, of doing it long term, right? So maybe in certain people's minds, because this is a very individual discussion, in their sense of morality, pleasure is a higher value and more important than the potential consequences of doing the thing. Like that's a very real consideration for certain people. 
I wonder if absolute morality exists, or again, if we contrast the animal and human species, whereas in the animal world, like I said, infanticide, cannibalism, destruction, blah, 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 we as humans created a framework of ethics. We created a framework of morality. Some people who are religious maybe say it was God or the Bible with the Ten Commandments, but I believe that the concept of ethics and morality are human-created concepts. Does that mean they're real? We're going down a really deep rabbit hole right now because it makes you wonder if humanity could all agree, if it's even possible to agree, that there are certain things that are objectively moral and ethical and others that are not. Or is this truly a deeply individualized examination? I mean, it really is interesting, Whitney, isn't it? As an example, I don't find the concept of, say, slaughtering hundreds of millions of animals a year for human consumption, an ethical thing to do. Some people might say, well, but we've got people to feed and it's unethical if we don't feed them because then children are starving and people are starving and we need meat. And so we need slaughterhouses and you're unethical because you're saying that's unethical. The point is, this is a very, very individualized perception conversation, isn't it? Because one person can say, that's unethical, that's wrong, we need to stop it. And then a whole other group of people can go, actually, no, it's not unethical, we need to keep doing it. And maybe this is one of the reasons humanity can't really get along in some ways. Because maybe certain people are saying that's wrong, it's unjust, it's unethical, and other people are like, it's perfectly fine, we don't need to stop it. I don't know that there is absolute objective morality. I don't know what else to say because I feel like we've just opened up a really deep portal with this whole conversation right now. And I think we've come to similar conclusions in recent episodes and many of our episodes of the show being an exploration and a conversation, not about answers, not about solutions necessarily, but just pondering. And I think that we as individuals need to take things day by day and continue to ask ourselves, does this feel good to me? Is this okay for me? What are my personal boundaries? Recognizing that other people have different boundaries and needs and belief systems. And one of the articles got into the role of social media was the article on csfjournal.com, which I'll link to in our show notes at wellevator.com. It gets into the link between loneliness, well-being, depression, and social media. There's a lot of research being done about that. This one points to one in 2018 and how social media is so tied into social comparison. And I think each of us has to step back and ask, well, are we gaining pleasure from something or feeling bad about something because of comparison? And we just tend to look to others to help us create our sense of self. And I think identity is a huge part of this, Jason. And we're in a time where social comparison is so normal and we're exposed to so many people. Like if we think about evolution, just what has happened in the past 10 to 20 years, our ability to compare ourselves to all of these strangers, of course, that's going to have an impact on our mental health. Of course, that's vastly different than it was 20 years ago and b- way before. We never had quite, to my knowledge, the ability to compare ourselves to that many people so quickly. So if these articles are finding 
that people are becoming more depressed from this, that are, they are feeling actually lonelier. Like maybe humanity is headed towards a really bad place. I mean, we know that these things can lead to suicide, self-harm, anger. I mean, we see the seemingly, I mean, I have to look it up, but like to my current knowledge, the gun violence is so horrible. I mean, I'm looking it up right now because I want to make sure that I'm understanding it. And there's a chart here. There's articles I'm pulling up one right now on bbc.com. And it's comparing the US where we live to England, Canada, Australia. And we have such a high level of gun-related killing in this country. And it makes me wonder, like... What is going on with our finances? What is going on with our food system? What is going on with our use of technology? But we also have different rules. Like this same article points out that the U.S. percentage-wise has a lot more firearms per person than many other countries. So that could explain it too. And certainly guns aren't the only issue, but guns are a very easy way for somebody to end their lives or the lives of others. And we're seeing it so frequent. We're seeing mass shootings. There's just so many statistics around this. And, you know, that's part of domestication too, just our access to weapons, Jason. Again, it's relatively new for us as a society to have this much access to guns and the ability to just end life in general. So like, it's interesting because human domestication has happened and continues to evolve because we feel like our needs are being met. And so we have a right as a country to bear arms and people might feel like that ties into their needs, brings them pleasure to your point, Jason. But what we have to realize is we also simultaneously have all this access to technology and studies are showing that it's increasing our mental health issues. So Owning a gun now, as many people pointed out, is very different than it was when these laws were established in the Constitution. It's like you can't quite point back to the past, given what's happened in the past 10 to 20 years with technology. And that's not even enough time for big studies to be done in depth. So a study that's done in 2018 is just scratching the surface. And that's already outdated in terms of what's happened up until now in 2021. So things are rapidly changing with technology. Our mental health might be getting worse. And so are we headed in a really bad direction? Perhaps. But I guess my belief system, ultimately, Jason, is like, I do have hope for humanity. I do think that human beings are intelligent and compassionate. Whether that's true or not, well, this remains to be seen. I mean, there's a lot of amazing things that we have access to because of technology, because of domestication. I mean, like my ability to travel across the country is very privileged compared to what it was a hundred years ago. Like what we've evolved to is amazing. Our abilities to record a podcast virtually and see each other. Like we have incredible perks and I guess we just have to figure out a way to balance them with the challenges and the drawbacks. And know too that we do still live in a dangerous time. I think ultimately like domestication is a desire to 
get our needs met and to survive longer. But I think our life expectancy is going down. I remember reading that, especially around millennials, surprisingly, the life expectancy was lower. And it was kind of a shock, like, well, (laughs) what do you mean it's lower? Like with everything that we have, but maybe the reason it's lower is because of mental health issues and because of the rise in violence. I think a lot of the anxiety that's plaguing humanity right now is we don't know where we're headed. And that's okay, because I think for those who are willing to facing our collective unknown and the dark cave we're all in, I vacillate between being hopeful, Whitney, and feeling hopeless, to be just totally blunt. There are some days where I feel a lot of hope for humanity and days where I feel completely hopeless. And I feel like, let's just burn the whole thing to the ground. So I vacillate. I tend to be (laughs) maybe a little more morose or macabre than you but I dwell maybe a little too much on the uh, complete decimation of Western civilization as we know it, and that that might not be such a bad thing. I don't know. Who knows where we're heading? We don't know. But this idea of life expectancy is really, really interesting you bring up. I concurrently read an article this past week that scientists were saying that they estimate, based on their calculations and current data, that the maximum range of a human lifespan is around 150 years. We'll link to that at wellevator.com as well. It's a fascinating read. I've been into longevity for a long time, crafted a cookbook and a TV series around it. So this idea that basically in this article, they were saying, Whitney, to piggyback on this life expectancy conversation, that on a cellular and biological level, we only have so much resilience to withstand stress and trauma. And that based on our current biochemistry, our cellular makeup, medicine, et cetera, et cetera, they don't see that the human body can withstand sustained trauma and stress past 150, which is super interesting because then it brings up the conversation, well, would I even want to live more than 150 years? I mean, 150 sounds like a good run. I mean, if you think about it, that's pretty remarkable if we were to even scratch that surface, right? So that's an interesting article we'll also link to. I was looking up some of the reasons for lower life expectancy, and there is some data behind this. One that I found was a Duke study, Duke University. Oh, it looks like 2018. And then the Center for Disease Control and Prevention says life expectancy has gone down, and that was in 2017. But then some sources are saying it's going up because of our access to things. So why is some life expectancy showing that it's going down? Well, part of it is the mental health issues. There's a big issue of burnout right now, especially for millennials and Gen Xers that are feeling really fed up. But this other research from Duke University was showing that the life expectancy for certain age ranges is declining because of things like drug overdoses. And I actually just watched a documentary, I think it was on HBO, about opioids. I'm trying to remember the name. There was another one called The Pharmacist on Netflix that was really good. Oh, The Crime of the Century is the one on HBO. That was a two-part 
documentary series about the opioid epidemic, and it was very eye-opening. It's a huge issue. I mean, even bigger than I realized, Jason. And our access to things like that, of course, has a lot to do with domestication as well. But that's a huge reason why our life expectancy has gone down. So I think if we look into it deeper, why are people taking opioids? It's like they want to feel better. I mean, that's physically and mentally. People just want to feel better and they probably feel like shit. Maybe their lives suck and they're just like, well, I'm going to take some drugs so I can get through this. They're also finding that suicides are on the rise and there's a lot of racial issues, especially young Hispanics, apparently, back in 2018, at least. There was a rise in alcohol-related deaths, which was a bigger problem for white people. And then diabetes-related deaths were increasing for young black women. Cancer and alcohol-related diseases are the leading causes or were the leading causes of death in 2018 of young black men. And they're finding that the racial disparities and the less access to health care and opioids were becoming a bigger challenge. And opioids on one level can be used well for people managing their pain, which the documentary covers. Like chronic pain, as you know, Jason, is physically and mentally debilitating. But the problem is, as the documentary goes into the lack of responsibility in prescribing the correct dosage and monitoring people to make sure they get off because a lot of get off of the drugs because a lot of people become addicted to it and there's a financial incentive for people buying these and getting hold of these things. So not to end this episode on a downer, but just to recognize that there are a lot of challenges and just seeing some of these deaths, it's like, my understanding on a general scope of why somebody drinks, why somebody does drugs, why does somebody smoke cigarettes, why does somebody eat processed foods and all that, most of it to me seems very tied into emotional challenges and mental health. They are coping mechanisms or they're an element of access in society. Like maybe you're just around people, the peer pressure side of it, Maybe you don't have access to other things, so you start drinking or eating processed foods or doing drugs because that's what you have access to. And or do you continue or start taking those things because of big mental health issues and people feeling lonely? You know, why does somebody go to the bar? Why does somebody engage in certain sexual relationships? It's often related to loneliness and then People feel heartbroken and they're trying to cope with it and they start drinking and they start doing drugs. I mean, it's like, it's a very simplified perspective, but I think overall, Jason, like the mental health side of it is a huge, huge issue and probably at the core of our lower life expectancies. And so are we ultimately domesticating in a positive direction? I think it's yes and no at the same time. I agree with you. I think like most of the topics we discuss here, it's a layered, multidimensional conversation. And I think it comes down to really looking at this, not just on an individual level, but a collective sociological level of how can we make ourselves well. And I want to just conclude on a statement where I think that 
There are a lot of individuals in the wellness healthcare medical system that genuinely and deeply care. I do believe that. And I've met so many people on my journey with doctors, therapists, naturopaths, healers that genuinely want to help heal themselves and heal humanity. However, I think the systems we have in place, by and large, do not serve human health and human longevity. I think there are people in the system that do, but I really believe that pharmaceuticals, mental health, privatized healthcare, denying medical access to certain people, I don't really believe that the systems we have here in the United States of America, is my personal opinion, are designed to heal people and sustain them. I think it's broken as hell. That's a totally different conversation, but I do think there are wonderfully talented, caring individuals in the systems, and I am grateful to know some of them and work with some of them and have been helped to heal myself by some of them. This is not an easy thing to figure out, which is one of the reasons we do this podcast. We're just trying to pontificate, get clear, discuss, examine, experiment, and not necessarily provide you with any answers. So if you came here looking for answers, sorry, but we do love having these conversations. If you want to hear more of our conversations, dear listener, we have well over 200 episodes at this point, and you can access all of them at our website, which is once again, wellevator.com. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Go there and click on the podcast section in the upper right corner. It will take you to the transcript and the show notes for this episode, including all the articles, books, and resources we mentioned. And you can access all of our previous articles as well. Uh, And we also have something new that we're doing, Whitney. Do you want to tell our listeners about this brand new, exciting thing that they can access to listen more about what we are sharing with the world? Well, we were going to shout out some brands today, but we're saving it because Jason and I are going to experiment with some new things. And one of them is a separate, short, mini podcast that you can get access to if you're interested. It is a private podcast. If you sign up for our newsletter at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com, you will get access to this new podcast that we're experimenting with. It may not last long. It may continue alongside this podcast. We don't know. But as of the beginning of June 2021, we're going to play around with this. You can check it out. And on that show, you will find our product recommendations. And we'll be talking about things that we love to eat, love to consume, like supplements, love to put on our bodies, love to use online, like whatever things that we're enjoying that are bringing us pleasure, that are supporting us with our well-being. Jason and I have been passionate about product and service recommendations for many years, and we have been doing them at the end of the episodes, but our episodes tend to run long and we want to offer something shorter and maybe compartmentalize it. So we're going to try out with doing this. It'll probably be five to 10 minutes long, so there'll be much more bite size, which some people may enjoy, and we would love your feedback on it. So you can get access to this. Go to wellevator.com. If it's not super clear where to click on it, we're probably still in development. So connect with us on social media. Send us an email if you have any trouble. 
And in future episodes, we'll have a direct link for you and we'll put that in the show notes and all of that. So for now, if you're part of our newsletter, you will be notified of this new private podcast for newsletter subscribers. And uh, we're excited to get your feedback on it. So with that, dear listener, thanks for getting uncomfortable with us as we discussed human domestication and all of the myriad issues, challenges, and revelations around that topic. So again, stay tuned for our brand new mini bite-sized podcast. We don't know what we're going to call it yet, but Whitney and I always come up with some pretty interesting titles. So again, stay tuned. Should we just keep it simple and call it the mini bite-sized podcast? <laughs> Would that be a cop-out? Com- what if it's called like comfort food or, you know what I mean? Like it's, what if it's the antithesis of the show? Interesting. Well, I have to research. I'm sure there's a podcast called Comfort Food, but... I don't know of one off the top of my head. And did you know there are actually a number of shows that are called This Might Blank, like This Might Get Weird. I looked it up the other day. It was like, this might get something else, like this might get real. Like there's a number of shows that have similar names and some shows that have the exact same name. So I kind of like something around comfort food, Jason. All right. Well, let's that like makes me feel good. I think it should have the word comfort and instead of uncomfortable, it'll be comfort. And so we'd be like, hey, did we make you uncomfortable in this episode? Go check out this episode to get some, or it could be called like food for the soul, but it's not just going to be food. Yeah. It's almost like nourishment is a more accurate word. I want to call it comfort something. Hmm. All right. We'll work on it. Stay tuned, dear listener, because Whitney and I are going to ideate. We're going to probably. We might put out a survey asking people what they think. I mean, that worked well last time. So maybe we'll just take a mega dose of CBD shout out to Head and Heal and work on some show ideas. So stay tuned for that. And thank you so much for listening, for supporting, for reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to WellEvator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.